Whoever thought making a baby could be so hard? Luckily, the fertility journey isn't meant to be traveled alone. Eloise Drain has helped hundreds of people build and grow their families over the last 15 years, and she's ready to share her insider knowledge and expertise with you. So grab a seat and let's talk fertility and alternative family building in the Fertility Cafe. When it comes to third party, there are so many unknowns. So today, I'm excited to speak to our guest, Dr. Lori Marshall. Dr. Marshall is the medical director and a founding partner of Pacific Northwest Fertility in Seattle, as well as clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology at University of Washington School of Medicine. She serves as the director of the Pacific Northwest Fertility Center for Collaborative Reproduction, overseeing its donor egg bank and donor egg gestational carrier and donor embryo programs. She received her bachelor's and medical degree through the honors program at Northwestern Medical School, did her residency in OBGYN at UC San Diego, and her fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at UCSF. Dr. Marshall is board certified in both obstetrics and gynecology and reproductive endocrinology and infertility. After serving on the faculty at UCSF, she moved to Seattle, initiated and led for 18 years an IVF center at Virginia Mason Medical Center, and then founded Pacific Northwest Fertility in 2005. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Marshall. Uh, thank you so much for joining me and welcome. So I, I was rather impressed uh, with reading your bio, um, but I would love for you to share a bit about yourself to the audience. Okay. So I'm one of the old folks in our field. <laughs> and I tell people that I've had a wonderful career because it has spanned basically the history of a really important medical discovery, progress, innovation, which is in vitro fertilization. I was in medical school when Louise Brown was born. Wow. And so I have been able to participate and, and observe uh, many of the developments in um, our field. And I, I, it has made it for me, a deeply satisfying field. Um, I originally was interested in neuroendocrinology and did my residency at UCSD with Sam Yen, who is obsessed with that topic. But over time, I've been interested in all sorts of different things in our field. Probably about 20 years ago, I started to be more interested in um, the reproductive ethics mm -hmm. and um, sat for quite a while on the ethics committee of ASRM and as well as the ethics committee of the American College of OBGYN. And um, through those um, relationships, I've become much more interested in the complexities of reproduction. And one of those very complex aspects is the involvement of other individuals in reproduction, which I like to refer to as collaborative reproduction and others call third-party reproduction. So, you know, I have been doing donor egg cycles since the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And with the first cycles that I've I did were on a friend of one of my patients who volunteered to be an egg donor. And over time, um, I became more and more interested in donor egg as a service that we provided. I've had the privilege of meeting one of the first egg donors in the world. One of the first papers on egg donation uh, reported on egg donors from Israel. And mm -hmm. I ultimately took care of one of those women um, and helped her 
uh, get pregnant with in vitro fertilization um, when she was 39 years old. So, um, so I've been very interested in this field. Um, and I, um, we do have sort of a medium-sized IVF program in Seattle, um, but we have done more egg donation, I think, than most programs do because of our proximity to Canada. Yes. And Canada, first British Columbia and then Canada, paid egg donation has been um, illegal for many years. Mm -hmm. And therefore, um, many of those patients came to Seattle for their egg donor cycles. So um, there have been times when half of our egg donor program were Canadian patients. So we've often done more egg donation than uh, most other programs. Um, we have always done it with uh, without an extra, without working with an agency. So we have been our own agency mm -hmm. for the most mm -hmm. part. We have recruited and screened donors ourselves and so have kept our thumb on all aspects of patient care, both care of the donor and care of the recipient. And that has been a very highly satisfying way to provide donor egg services. And I absolutely love, um, obviously, I, I, I follow um, Pacific Northwest Fertility, and then I follow your other colleagues and, uh, and love your donor program, uh, specifically because I know that you guys care very much for your donors. Um, being a donor myself, starting in 1999. So, you know, kind of going back, you know, one yes. of the older people yes. too, right? Hey. Uh, yes. And um, and seeing the drastic change because Lord only knows when I was considering being a donor, there wasn't really a lot of information out there like there mm -hmm. is right now. Um, and so you didn't really know what to expect. You didn't really know what to know. How, what is What is it going to be like and how is it going to be? And even still, right now, though, I still think that there's a lot of women, if they were educated enough to really understand the donor process, that potentially there could be more women that would be willing to step up and become donors. Yeah, a, an awful lot of the donors that we care for in our program are referred by their friends. Yeah. So there's a lot of word of mouth referrals and we do pride ourselves in how well we take care of the donors. Um, in, in the old days when it was just fresh donor egg cycles, mm -hmm. the recipients used to write letters and give gifts to the donors. And they still do when we do fresh donor egg cycles, but now more and more some of our donors are just doing cycles to put eggs in our egg bank, which we've mm -hmm. had since 2009, in fact. And um, and so so we we don't have that extra recipient sort of thanking them and personalizing it. So we as a program do that. So mm -hmm. we we write them a letter. We um, every single member of the team signs it. We often have a personalized note like "Good luck with your schooling" or "Good luck with this." And um, so we do we do want the donors to feel like they're doing something really special. And it, just the money isn't enough. Enough. That's right. And it's they the donors that are that feel like they're doing something good for other women are the ones who are the easiest for us to work with. Mm -hmm. They're the most satisfied with the procedure and they come back for other procedures. Mm -hmm. And um and so we we do um we do think that it is important to keep that personal touch and to make the donor feel 
valuable in the process. Yeah, I definitely agree. And and I actually wanted to specifically speak about your practice because I think uh, that you were co-founded, but I think that you um, lead a very unique practice that is an all-led female medical staff, which is highly unusual. I think if I think about it, maybe one or two other practices in the whole country are all female-led staff. So was that intentional when you developed this practice or did it just happen or... It just happened. Um, the co-founder of the practice was Lee Hickok, who is male. And so, so we did have a male partner for many, many years. He retired about five years ago. And it really has not been intentional that we have all women, but most folks in the field know that more and more women are going into obstetrics and gynecology, and therefore more and more women are going into the the subspecialties. And it really has just been that we look for the right person at the right time, and it just happened to be female. So we now have five female physicians. Not all of our staff are female. One of our lead, our director of our embryology lab is male. So got um, it. So we do <laughs> where it's not deliberate, but patients are comforted, I think, by I think so. knowing that if they see a provider, that it's going to be female. Yeah. And and I think, you know, and I can only speak for myself as a woman that I also do prefer um, my physicians to be women. It's just when I share something that I'm experiencing or going through, oftentimes they know exactly what I'm experiencing and they can mm-hmm. empathize because they perhaps have experienced the same thing. Right, right. Yeah. I, Yes. Some women like to tell their stories and some don't, right? But I think that um, many women who are in the field do have their own stories that they could tell, and at least they can incorporate them into the experience as they care for their patients. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, You stated on a video on your website that your practice has intentionally limited its size and you're not trying to be the largest practice in the Northwest and that you want to provide a more intimate care experience, Mm -hmm. which I can certainly relate as our agency, although we were considered mid-size, we very much prioritize personalized service as well. And I wanted to ask you, number one, again, was that intentional about the size of the practice? And what do you think the benefits are to for your patients when you do it, when you've set it up that way? Right. We struggle with this all the time and um, because there is a huge demand in the Seattle area for fertility services and we hate for people to wait to come into the practice. But we do think that ultimately the practice runs in a more intimate way if we can um, keep the size down. We initially said no more than four physicians. We have five now. <laughs> and we did open a satellite in one of the um, suburbs, Bellevue, um, just outside of Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, and But we are very s- deliberate about our choices for growth. Um, I've always said I don't want to be in a position where one of my patients gets pregnant and I don't know who she is, yeah. right? I never want to be in that position. I think the satisfaction for all the providers and the team are greater if we can have a more intimate experience. And um, 
and that's transmitted to the patients. Many of the patients who come say, I can just tell that people here like their job. And, and that's important to us mm-hmm. to keep our staff, to have them happy. And that translates into better care, I think, of our patients. Yeah, I definitely agree. So I wanted to ask, as you had already alluded to this, that you sat on the ethics committee of ASRM and ACOG for many years, um, and you're a leader in medical and ethical issues in egg donation and speaking right frequently on the topic. What do you feel is the third-party reproduction uh, ethical considerations of our time now? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's super donors, anonymity, informed consent, oh, uh, long-term so, effects of egg so donation. I know. Hence the- <laughs> there's so many. Um, yes. I, I mean, I could list 15, 20, right? Mm-hmm, there's lots mm-hmm, of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I do think, I do think um, one of the biggest ones is how commercialized and commodified the process has become. Yes. And, and to sort of broker that because you want the donors to be autonomous and to have their choices. And, you know, if, if they, you want them to be able to bargain for the amount of money that they get. But on the other hand, this is a medical process and we, we consider things like informed consent very important. And part of informed consent is not being coerced to do something to take risks that you don't need to take. And so we're always considering these issues, compensation to donors, um, sort of separating the, the, the relationships that are involved in collaborative reproduction from sort of frank commercialism mm-hmm. and trying to keep this from being just a financial transaction. So, so I think that's one of the challenging ones. And, and that undercurrent does affect an awful lot of things that we do. I think the other issue, I think you mentioned disclosure, which mm-hmm. is a fascinating one. Um, in the early days of egg donation, there sort of used to be two models. One was, we used to call it the California model, and the mm-hmm. other was the Pacific Northwest model, right? <laughs> so the California model was the model where the donor would meet the recipient couple and say, I'm going to give you my eggs, and she would do a fresh donor cycle, and all those eggs would go to the recipient couple. And most folks that we cared for in the Pacific Northwest and in Canada preferred anonymity. Mm-hmm. And um, and they um, they wanted to have a child. Many of them probably didn't disclose the circumstances of their conception to their offspring, and had no intention to. And really, with not that many people knowing about donor egg as uh, as an offering, you know, they raised their children with them, not really knowing, knowing. they were conceived with donor egg. So. Uh, speaking of anonymity and the um, big place where anonymity is huge, obviously in frozen egg bank programs, but we also know that there's tests like DNA and uh, what is it? DNA and me Ancestry or 23 DNA, and me. There you go. Me, yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how how um, do you think that is going to fare with now all of these organizations that are coming up and what, and even with your practice, how are you all, um, you know, trying to think long-term about donor anonymity? Well, actually 
we've actually eliminated the term anonymous from describing donor egg cycles. And Mm -hmm. so both unofficially and officially, we now say you have either a directed or a non-directed donor. Got it. So a directed donor cycle would be what we used to say is a known donor cycle. So a sister or somebody that you know who is giving their eggs specifically for a person that they know, right? And a non-directed donor would be what we used to call anonymous, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which basically would be the eggs that are in the bank. Those women who gave their eggs to put in the bank are not directing their eggs toward anyone individually. But we've actually dropped the term anonymous from all of our paperwork and our consents so that people don't believe that it's going to be anonymous. That's a great idea. You need to enter into this process knowing it's not anonymous. And we talk to them about um, at-home ancestry testing and you know, your kid can buy these kits and find out that they have siblings that um, are out there somewhere or relatives that really weren't part of what they believe to be their nuclear family and raise questions. And so the best thing is just to start from the beginning and make donor egg part of your child's story. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, in different ways. And there's so many people who are thinking about this now in children's books and such that I think are, it's going to be the standard that, um, that children grow up knowing um, the circumstances of their conception. In Washington state, there is a law um, that requires, since 2011, there has been a law that requires that any man or woman who, any person who gives eggs or sperm at the time of donation um, basically says, agrees to saying that that when the child turns 18, that that child can know the name and the birth date of their sperm or egg donor. And that's a law. It's a law. And wow. the, the donor can be accepted from it. So they can, at the time of donation, they can say, no, no, I don't want I don't want to agree to being an open identity donor. So this is what's called an open identity donor in Washington state. It's not that the child, when they're five, can know who the donor is. When the child turns 18, they can have that information. Um, The law has actually been um, with the Uniform Parentage Act that was recently passed and became effective in the beginning of 2019. They can be asked twice for that permission. So at the time of donation, unless they sign the affidavit saying, I don't want to do this, then that child can be given that information by the program. But if if the donor didn't agree to it at the time of donation, we're now required to try to reach out to the donor and ask them again wow. when the child turns 18. So so I think we're, I believe that we're the only state that this is part I think of so. the law. And, um, but it is one step toward respecting the offspring. So what we always say in a donor egg relationship is that the donor signs a consent, the recipient couple signs a consent, but the child doesn't consent to the relationship. So, um, So when the child reaches, you know, an age when they can process this information and they can be independent, um, then most people feel that they do have a right to know who the donor is if 
they choose to know that. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I did a podcast um, and I, off the top of my head, I can't remember what episode it was, but it was Erin Jackson, who um, was the founder of Donor Conceived. We are Donor mm-hmm. Conceived. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, in the conversation, there was so many eye-opening things that she shared with me about the children that are, mm-hmm. um, you know, the product, if you will, for lack of better terms, of the results of, you know, the parents wanting children and, mm-hmm. you know, making or having to make these decisions about, you know, having to use donor eggs or even working with a gestational carrier or whatever the case might be. Um and how that affects their life long-term when, you know, and I think we also as a society, uh, an industry, I should say, um, in the professional community, that we need to step up and start discussing and having these conversations with these families and making it that it's okay. It's okay to work with a donor. It's okay for that to be your story. It's okay for it to be your child's story instead of being so um, embarrassed or ashamed or wanted to be hidden because you don't want anybody to know or, you know, whatever the case might be, because I'm sure you're probably not going to love your child any less. Of course not. Those are obviously very wanted children. Of course. I think the hard thing is that most women, when they come to to deciding to use an egg donor to have a child, they're pretty beat up at that point. Of course. Right? And so they are, are not very secure in their motherhood. And, you know, and, and then they get pregnant, they carry the pregnancy, they deliver the child, they breastfeed the child. In their mind, there's there's no way that anyone else has a claim on this child to be their mother, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's the easiest thing mm-hmm. not to tell the child. And of course, as with all pieces of important information, there's never a good time to do it. So mm-hmm. even folks that intend to often don't know how to, and every child's different. Um, I think it's hard for a child to be raised in this society and you throw one more thing at them and sure. that's difficult. So so I think you're right that I that that so many people have the preconception that if they have a child with donor egg they're not the biological parent. And of course they are mm-hmm. the biological parent. Mm-hmm. By just carrying the pregnancy, delivering the child, they are the gestational mother of the child. Um, they're just not the genetic mother. Mm-hmm. And we are learning more and more about epigenetics, how actually the environment that the child's exposed to in utero affects the expression of genes. For each gene, the, there's either a maternal or a paternal one that's turned on. And that's affected by the environment. So your environment that you provide for the child has a lot to do with even their, you know, the the how their DNA is used, basically. Still the strand is, you know, from the donor. There's no question about that. But still you do have a, a genetic influence on your child as the gestational parent. So I think I think people just have to have to use the right language. And mm-hmm. I always talk to my patients about it. I said, people, if you tell them that you had a child with donor egg, they're going to say, well, how does it feel not being the real mother of the child. Mm. And I said, of course, you're the real mother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You are mm-hmm. the real and the only mother of the child and a biological mother of the child. And the 
the woman who's a donor doesn't want to be the mother no. of your child. No. And um, and you are the only person who can be and wants to be the mother of your child. I, it's it's difficult. And, and I would have hoped that the community would be more accepting now than they are. But I still think there's a long ways to go. Oh, yes. And I talk to patients and how hard it is for older women who have low egg supplies to embrace moving to donor egg. Um, all I can say is that women who have done it are like, why didn't I do this before? Why did mm. I put myself through everything I put myself through when this is the way I could have built my family? And it's so highly satisfying. And um, with all the heartache and pain and grief that you would have saved yourself from experiencing all of those other years of attempting. Um, so I, I actually uh, want to jump into the conversation about gestational carriers because oh. I, um, <laughs> I obviously have been a gestational carrier myself. And in your perspective of the gestational carrier still having some kind of um, connection with this child's overall life, I mean, I find that fascinating and I definitely want to discuss that a little bit more um, and just really trying to understand for somebody who obviously wants to be a gestational carrier and then even for the intended parents like, oh, my God, no, I don't want to work with now with a with a GC because now my child is going to be genetically related. Um, can we discuss that, uh, you know, thought a, a bit more? So are you are you are you saying that because of epigenetics and because epigenetics, of the influence yes, of the yes. um yeah I mean I think that's part of it but I still think that couples that that develop embryos and then a carrier carries the pregnancy that's that's that has the woman's you know the the female partner's eggs and the male partner's sperm um you know there's no question that who the parents are but mm -hmm. I do think actually that that having a child with egg donor is easier than maybe having a child through a carrier. Mm -hmm. That it is maybe harder mm -hmm. to feel confident that you're the parent of this child. Genetics help a little bit, but they don't help completely. Um, mm -hmm. I, these are all challenges of oh, adulthood. Yes. Is anytime you move into collaborative reproduction, it is a challenge. So I think that's where all the things, all the safeguards that we try to put in place for carrier cycles um, are important. So legal contracts, I tell people the legal contract is don't, don't be scared of that. That's oh, a is. way that you yes. can look through all the possible things that can happen. Think about them ahead of time, address them ahead of time and come out of this with a good relationship with your carrier and a good relationship with your family, their family, and feel like this is a healthy relationship. So counseling and legal contracts are so important and legal contracts that the, you know, the carrier has a different lawyer than the, 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 the couple. Mm -hmm. I've, I've seen, you know, part of the problem with carrier cycles, and I'm sure you see this, is that it's gotten so expensive. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. That, that it's it's unreachable for most folks. And so there's more and more people who are trying to do DIY carrier mm -hmm. cycles. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's like a huge can of worms because yes. they're, that's really the time when you're sort of set up to have difficulties and the carrier be too much in your child's life. Yes. It, I, 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 I wholeheartedly agree. Um, 
you know, when I started um, my surrogacy journey to today and the cost and the drastic change in cost uh, Mm -hmm. for surrogacy. And I mean, going back to the point you had actually discussed about it now becoming more of a um, a, a business transaction rather than an emotional connection Connection. with the families that you're carrying for or even being a donor for. On the surrogacy side, it has absolutely become a business transaction, um, which is a bit scary. Mm-hmm. quite honestly, that it has become so more business than mm-hmm. the emotional side, because unfortunately now there's a lot more uh, families that um, can't afford it. And then there's a lot more surrogates that think they can be, or potential surrogates, I should say, or potential gestational carriers. I know on the medical term, it's gestational carriers, but uh, lay people tend typically say surrogates. Surrogate. Um, sure. And the, the, that there are unfortunately some surrogates that think like, oh no, look at all the money that I can make. And so, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what the consequences are or what I have to go through. I'm going to do it because of the amount of money that's there, which goes back to the point that many of the, there's different organizations that talk about um, when you work with a gestational surrogate or, or sorry, gestational carrier or surrogate or that we're exploiting women and we're taking advantage advantage of women because, you know, there's all this money that's being thrown at them, but they don't really understand the process that these women have to go through in order to even be, to be approved to be a gestational carrier. Right. Um, and I know that GCs must meet ASRM guidelines, clinic standards. And if they're working with an agency, agency standards, um, were you involved in the creation of the current ASRM guidelines for surrogates? Can you tell us a bit about how? No. Okay. No, I wasn't. I, I rotated off the ethics committee. By that point? By that point. Yeah. Yes. But can yeah. you speak on why the importance of screening these candidates where, you know, medical records and psychological Mm -hmm. evaluations and um, the attorneys, like you were saying, and making sure that everybody has separate legal counsel so that they each feel that they're being represented. And um, can you, and then even the, of course, the medical screening and all of that, of what that entails. Right. Can you touch on that a bit? Right, right. I, I, I think that just as with egg donor services, with carrier services, even when there are agencies involved that physicians really are, you know, the professionals that are the helm of this. And and our first our first obligation is to make sure that our patients stay safe, that they come out of this healthy and that the babies have the best chance to be healthy as well. So so that's the first thing that we have in mind and and so uh we do deal with uh, in, in Washington State, that we do have separate laws about surrogacy that are just a teeny bit different than um, uh, than our guidelines. Like, for example, Washington State, the the carrier has to have had a child, mm-hmm. and in order to be a surrogate, um, and you know, ASRM has an upper limit of age forty four. We don't want women who are 49 years old to be carrying a pregnancy because we think 45 years old is a time when when the risk to the woman starts to go up. Um, mm-hmm. More women have diabetes, et cetera. Um, and we really want 
the carriers to take this seriously. I mm-hmm. think the riskiest thing a woman does in her life almost is to be pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, unfortunately, we've recently become aware of yes. risks of to a carrier, um, to their health and even to their life. They can have things like an ectopic pregnancy. They can have a miscarriage and bleed. They can bleed at the time of delivery and lose their uterus. So it's certainly best that carriers have completed their childbearing at the time that they decide to be a carrier. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of, of health, that's always a judgment call. And we usually the surrogate agencies have done some pre-screening of the carriers because they don't want to invest too much time and, and money into them if they're not going to be a good candidate. But we always review their obstetrical records and make sure that there have not been complications of prior pregnancies that we could expect will occur in another pregnancy. Um, so that's for the protection of both the carrier and the recipient couple. So, and if, you know, if a carrier has had preterm labor, they've probably got a higher chance of having it again. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that adds expense to the process and anything that adds expense to a carrier cycle is not in the interest of the intended parents. And so we try to look out for both parties in this process, but we also know how much money the intended parents are paying for these cycles. And we really don't want them to spend money and have complications, the pregnancy or complications to the child. Yes, definitely. And and strangely, there is still a lot of confusion about how surrogates become pregnant. And um, I know with this, well, many because partners of would-be surrogates are initially uh, against them becoming surrogates until they're clear on how Mm -hmm. the pregnancy is achieved via a medical process. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, when I first decided to become a surrogate, um, I um, was, I can't even remember where I was, and um, the lady congratulated me. And I was like, oh, you know, no, it's a a surrogacy pregnancy. She's like, oh my God, your husband let you sleep with another man? I was like, no, 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 that is not how it works. Right? <laughs> yes. Right? So, yes. so, you know, uh, science fiction literature influences how we perceive these things. Right? Yes. So, yeah, yeah. Can you describe the medical process of, of an embryo transfer into a gestational carrier, carrier and the gestational carrier is not sleeping with anybody? So, Absolutely yeah. <laughs> not. Absolutely not. So there used to be, we used to, we used to say, oh, there's traditional surrogacy. That's right. Um, versus gestational surrogacy, right? So with with traditional surrogacy, meaning that the egg of the carrier was used for to achieve the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And in that case, you can imagine that it was sex. It usually isn't. It usually would be something like insemination of the husband the, the who is the intended parent into the carrier, and then they would become the carrier would become pregnant and deliver the child. So she has two biological connections to the child. So she carries um, the pregnancy, but she also provides the egg, right? So so that gives her two claims of motherhood. And, and the conflict that has arisen from that was the reason why in Washington State for many years, paid surrogacy was against the law. Yeah. Right? The Whitehead case many, many years ago um, was a traditional surrogacy relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's why in most states that's not allowed. And in our field, we don't participate in those. We only participate 
in what we call gestational surrogacy, mm-hmm. where the egg is not from the, the carrier. The egg is either from a, a donor or from the intended um, parent, female parent. So that is what we do. And that's what we refer to as gestational surrogacy or a gestational carrier. Um, interestingly, and you probably know this, in the state of Washington, when they passed the Uniform Parentage Act in 2019, that they do allow traditional surrogacy. Really? Yes, it is allowed by law, but the stipulations are so strict that you would never do it. Mm. So, so the um, you have to, in order to establish a pregnancy um, in that manner, which generally would be insemination of the husband's sperm into the carrier, you have to first go before a court and get special court permission to do it. And then the there's a contract that's drawn up and but the carrier can change their mind up into a certain time after delivery and decide she wants to keep the child. And if she does that, then the intended parents are still responsible oh for my God. all of her care, right? So, so it's, it's sort of ridiculous yeah. that in there, and it's, but it's there, and so it's not illegal. I think, I, I think the concern when this was decided upon is that to say it was illegal was, would have raised too many objections. And sure. so instead they say it's legal, but there's so many hoops that you have to jump through that it's not a practical option. Yeah. And I, I mean, we don't do any, yes, that's very fascinating. And I had no idea. <laughs> I mean, I did um, read the uniform uh, act, but I did not. And probably because again, we don't do any traditional surrogacy yeah, either. We, neither do we. Um, right. And so I don't really put my focus to be honest of in not. traditional yeah. surrogacy. Yeah. So, and, but these are the reasons why, you know, I mean, I right, don't know right. any intended parent in their right mind that would say, oh yeah, you know, not a problem. Mm-hmm. That's, we, I can try that and let's just see what happens. Right. Right. No, right. I personally would never agree to that. That's for sure. Um, Well, I want to know um, when it comes to the actual embryo transfer with the gestational carriers, um, you know, oftentimes we get the question like, oh my God, is it painful? Is it going to hurt? Or, um, and I can tell you, I've done it many times, a total of seven to be exact. Wow. Um, yeah. So it, I can tell you, it's definitely not painful. Obviously the worst part is that full bladder, but mm-hmm. <laughs> can you kind of share from a medical perspective on the process and the experience? Sure. Sure. So it's just like any embryo transfer we do for IVF, for egg donor, and same for carrier cycle. Um, and basically, we do have women usually drink water and fill their bladder. And Eloise was correct. That <laughs> usually, that's the hardest part of the procedure. And usually, it goes very smoothly, particularly yeah. carriers have had children before. And it's usually easier to put a catheter through the cervix when it's been dilated and there's been a vaginal birth. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's we put in a speculum, um, just 
sort of flush off the cervix, put a little catheter gently um, into just the very lower portion of the uterus. And then the embryologist loads the embryo and um, we thread it through the outer sheath of the catheter into the uterus and inject it. And really, truly, the full bladder and putting a speculum in the vagina when your bladder's full is the hardest part of it. Right. Um, We try to, you know, make the experience good for the carrier too. Um, We have a video feed from the uh, microscope to a little screen that's in the room. So the carrier can see the embryo and can watch the embryologist draw the embryo up into a catheter, which is just fun and interesting. And then um, during COVID, they can FaceTime whoever they wanted to the room, haven't allowed um, intended parents to be in the room during COVID. Um, But at other times, we do allow intended parents to be in the room um, and are just very discreet about that. So obviously, it's a vaginal procedure. And we allow if they want their own partner to be in the room. Mm -hmm. That's fine, too, because sometimes they feel more supported by their own partner than by the intended parents where they have this sort of personal mm-hmm. transactional relationship mm-hmm. with, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, and, um, you know, we take care of them just like we take care of any patients. And I think the most important thing, um, being at the helm of a collaborative reproduction program, is that our intended parents are our patients, but also our donors are our patients and our carriers are our patients. And we value them as much as we do the intended parents. Yeah, which I wish everybody could um, do the same thing. Um, I mean, we definitely do the same through our agency. You know, we I typically say it's kind of like a triangle, you know, um, the GCs and the donors on one side, the intended parents on the other side. And there's this peak at the top that this child that we are all collectively, you know, working yeah. to bring to to to, to fruition. Um, and it's it, it could be one of the most most amazing beautiful experiences you can be a part of so and we want to keep it that way yes yeah. yes mm-hmm. i i wholeheartedly agree I agree excuse me so any words of advice um that you would share with our listeners when it comes to um i love how you guys say it collaborative reproduction instead of third party reproduction since that is uh, what this podcast is um really focused on um any words of advice um, I think for intended parents, I think you just have to treasure any any part of your contact with the program, the donor or the carrier that humanizes the donor and the carrier. That you really still, even though you want to sort of put that donor in the back of your mind, I think it's better to know a little bit about the donor, to recognize they're human. It's the first step in recognizing your child's human too, right? right? So you you are not purchasing a perfect product and you can't expect that. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, and, and these donors are, are doing this. Yes, they get money for it, but, but most of the time donors, the money's not enough to do mm-hmm. this. Right. Mm-hmm. And they are doing it for you too. And mm-hmm. so that you can build your family. And so I, I think to keep that in mind and to keep sort of their feelings and what they, they've had to go through to donate their eggs in mind is really important. Um, I think it's also important for um, if you have a carrier and you're an intended parent is to recognize that being a carrier is the riskiest thing a woman does. And that again, 
they are getting well compensated for it, but they really are taking a big risk. And right. that, um, and that you you do need to appreciate that. And so. Uh, any couples that are considering using a carrier need to take it seriously. It can't be, oh, darn, I really don't want to have those stretch marks and I'll just get one of those carriers, right? So it really uh, has yes. to, there has to be a good reason to have a carrier. It has to yes. be a medical issue or you can't get pregnant any other way. And it is a last resort and the price that it costs means that it does become your last resort, of course. Yes. Yes. Um, and I think for for donors and and carriers, I I think it's important for you to know that even when it does feel like a transaction, that really that the couples that build their families will look back at what you did so fondly. Mm-hmm. And eventually, too, that um, you know you can look back even within yourself and 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 give yourself the credit that you truly have helped. You you are now you helped build another legacy for somebody right, else. Right, right, and it's good to remember that the money will go away, and that's we'll, right. You know, buy some furniture, be that's right, down payment on a house or something like that. But but really, what you've done for this couple is what lasts. That's right, that's right, for a long time, and who knows how many generations later. You know, yeah. so um, thank you so much, Dr. Marshall, for joining me today. How can our listeners find you? Um, well, Pacific Northwest Fertility is our clinic. Yeah. And we are, what, what is it? PNWfertility.com is mm. our website. And that's how you can find me. I am not big into social media. So <laughs> I do have an Instagram, Dr. Lori Marshall. And, but I otherwise don't participate in social media except through our practice. Uh, likewise. So um, I try, but I just I just have no interest for some reason. So, but it, regardless, we will make sure that all of your information is on our show notes. And I just really want to take the time to thank you. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us Great. and to help us uh, to learn more and educate um, our listeners. And I um, really appreciate your time. And thank you so much for inviting me. That was a delight to chat with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I hope you found this discussion helpful as you weigh your next steps. You can follow Fertility Cafe on its Instagram and Facebook channel, Family Inceptions. If you haven't yet, go to your listening platform of choice and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. We'd also love you to share Fertility Cafe with friends and family members who would benefit from the information shared. Thank you so much for joining me today. Remember, love has no limits. Neither should parenthood. Thank you for joining us in the Fertility Cafe. Whether you're an intended parent, a woman considering egg donation, thinking of becoming a surrogate yourself, or a friend or family member of someone dealing with infertility, we're here to help. Visit our website, thefertilitycafe.com, for resources on fertility, alternative family building, and making this journey your own.